Well, in the providence of God, on the day that we dedicate the mission team that is heading to Guatemala, another one that will be going to Florida, our sermon this morning happens to be on God's great salvation in the book of Jonah, chapter 3. Now, Jonah's known for the miracle of the big fish who swallowed Jonah, and after 72 hours, he emerged alive. But actually, the conversion of the great city of Nineveh is the greatest miracle in this book. Now, this morning on the screen, you see a scale model of the city of Nineveh as it looked in the time of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, about 50 years after the time of Jonah. When Jonah arrived, it would not have looked exactly like this, but this was how it developed many years later. The wall in the back stretched for seven miles. And this was one of the great cities of the world in 750 B.C. when the Lord called Jonah to go there and preach to it. So our message today is actually about the incentives for evangelism and world missions. Of course, in my brilliance and long-range planning, I uh, planned this message to coincide with this day perfectly. And if you believe that, I have some swampland in Florida that I would like to sell to you. Obviously not by a long shot, but how many would say God's timing is perfect? Amen. And so what are the incentives to obey God, take a risk, share the gospel, and be a missionary? And that's what we want to see this morning from Jonah chapter 3. And so I want you to take your Bibles, and I want you to turn there again. Now remember that Jonah is uh, one of those little minor prophets right between Obadiah and Micah. So if you can find Obadiah and Micah, and you can turn then to Jonah in the middle of them, in your chair Bible, it's page 920, I would really encourage you to turn there in the chair Bible, and let's look together at God's encouragements and incentives to share the gospel and to be a part of world missions. Let's take a moment and pray together. Lord, thank you that whether we are in the Old Testament or the New Testament, your heart for the world is the same. And thank you that you call us to be your missionaries, your sent ones. And you encourage us because as we will see, the task is difficult. In many ways, it seems insurmountable. But you, Lord, are moving and you are the one who is working And you are the one who uses available believers. And so today, may our hearts be full of what you can accomplish as we give ourselves to you. So guide us now as we pray together and seek your guidance and your direction. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to notice how verses 1 to 3 open up. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. 
So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceeding great city, three days' journey in breadth. Let's stop right there and let's notice the first encouragement for world evangelization. And it is this. God's sovereignty guarantees that He will reach the lost. Now, as we look at these opening verses in chapter 3, we notice the word of the Lord comes to Jonah the second time. The second time. Now, two points are being made in this section about this phrase, second time. I think, number one, it's obvious to all of us that God is a God of second chances. How many can say amen to that? Yes, yes. If you were to say to me, Pastor Brian, do you believe in second chances? I would say, yes, I do. And I believe in third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances. <laughs> in fact, God is the God of many, many chances. And God forgives and He restores His servants and He calls them to service once again. And Jonah is a great illustration of that. But I think the phrase, the second time, has a greater emphasis. And that emphasis is this, God restated His will the second time. Whose will? God's will. If you were to take time and compare verses 1 to 3 of chapter 3 with verses 1 to 3 of chapter 1, you would discover they are almost identical. The major difference is in chapter 1, Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish, away from God's will. But now we are told Jonah arises and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So whose will is being accomplished here? God's will is being accomplished. Now, let me ask you, does Jonah really want to go at this point? No, he does not. As we're going to see in chapter 4, he really doesn't want to go. And so why did he go? Well, I think he didn't want to spend another 72 hours in the belly of a big fish. Right? Jonah cried, uncle. He said, I've had enough. He said, okay, I'll go. But as we're going to see... He was not a happy camper. He was quite angry. Now, I want you to be reminded of the words, last words of Jonah, while he was praying in the belly of this great fish. Let's read the last words in yellow together. Read them with me. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You know, we could put that title over the whole book. It is the theme of Jonah. And the, the little Hebrew preposition that is translated belongs here means ownership. God owns salvation. And what this is saying to us is by divine right, God accomplishes salvation. He owns it and He saves whom He will. What was God's plan in chapter 1? Well, it was to reach Nineveh. What is God's plan in chapter 3? It is to reach Nineveh. Who is succeeding? 
Who's succeeding? God is. God is succeeding. Now what if believers disobey? What if we fail? Well, two things will happen. God will discipline us until we do obey. Or God will get somebody else who will obey. But God does not fail. God is sovereign. By the way, I just want to say this is true of churches. If a church refuses to uh, take seriously the Great Commission and evangelize the lost in their community and around the world, God will raise up another church that will do His will. You see, God is sovereign. He will not fail. Now, I think this affects us in two ways. Number one, it affects us in our motivation. Why do we evangelize the lost? And I think there are a lot of reasons why. We love them. That certainly has to be one. We're obedient to God. That has to be another. We love God. That has to be another. We want to do His will. That's another. And we want Him to use us. All of those are the reasons why we evangelize the lost. But listen very carefully. We never evangelize the lost because God is weak and impotent, right? Right? We never evangelize the lost because God is weak and impotent. God wants to use us, but we understand He is never dependent upon us. He is a sovereign God. Now, the second thing this affects is our encouragement. You see, despite our weaknesses and our difficulties, God will succeed. And if we prepare ourselves the best that we can, and we make ourselves available to God, then God will indeed accomplish His will. Let me ask you this morning, how many think Jonah could have succeeded in Nineveh without God? How many miles away was Nineveh? Remember? Chapter 1, God said, go to Nineveh, 550 miles. Jonah said, I'm not going. He went, tried to go 2,000 miles to Tarshish, the opposite way. Finally, under discipline, Jonah says, okay, I will go. And it is a trip of 550 miles northwest northeast of Samaria. You know how long that would take by camel? One month. If you walked, a whole lot longer. And you've got one man going to visit violent enemies. He has a negative message he's going to preach, and he needs their hospitality to succeed. Uh, you know what one pastor has said? From a human perspective, this entire enterprise appears ridiculous. And of course that's true. Uh, let me ask our team some questions this morning. How many of you speak Kiche? How many of you speak Spanish? Are you going? <laughs> if, if I was them, I'd lasso you and make you go. <laughs> She's gone five times before. 
How many of you found fundraising for this trip to be a breeze? You know, fundraising is one of the most difficult things missionaries have to do. It's extremely hard and discouraging. How many of you know any adults who can't read? You're going to meet some. How many of you can relate to the most extreme poverty that you have ever experienced? How many of you minister to children who many of them have worms and bad health care? Think of our team going to Florida for spring break. How many college students on spring break in Florida do you think are really excited to hear on the beach about Jesus? Probably not most of them. You see, the whole enterprise, when we look at it, appears, quite honestly, to be a little ridiculous. Unless we believe in a sovereign God, right? Then it makes perfect sense. One of my old professors says, God delights to do the impossible. And everybody said, Amen. And because God is sovereign, He can do the impossible. He can. And that's the first incentive for us to do the work of God. Now let's notice the second one, alright? Number two. God's Word packs the power that we need. Look what happened in verses 4 and 5. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And then would you notice this? And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, we have got to ask ourselves a question as we look at this amazing response, and verse 5 gives to us the general description, and then verses 6 to 10 break it down into details as to what happened as they responded. And many people looking at this have simply asked this question, what in the world could have made Jonah so effective? Um, here's what one Bible teacher says, could Jonah's demeanor have carried with it an air of authority that prompted their belief? Did the Ninevites somehow sense the seriousness of the matter through the confidence of this prophet? Did his unusual skin color prompt questions about why he looked this way? Some have surmised that Jonah's sojourn in the fish was shared with the people before his coming and that it prompted a reverential awe for this prophet. Now let's think about this for just a moment. After three days pickled in whale juice... One missionary I heard who preached on this section said Jonah probably looked like a purple prophet. And so we wonder what kind of an impression did he make? You know what others have said? When you study the background to what was happening in Assyria, Nineveh was in a period of national crisis. A famine had occurred. They were fighting off enemy attacks. There was internal revolt. 
their territory was shrinking while Israel's was expanding. We know from history that a full eclipse of the sun had occurred in 763 B.C. And superstitious people, as they were, all of this coming down on their heads, thought they had offended the gods. They also believed in prophets. So when a strange foreigner with an unusual message shows up, they would apparently have felt all of these factors have come into place because the gods are trying to get our attention through this unusual man by the name of Jonah. By the way, does God use difficult circumstances to draw people to Himself? Yeah, He does. No question at all. But let me ask you, what does the text say made Jonah effective? What made him effective? Did you notice verse 2? It was the message. It was the message. I want you to notice with me how specific God was about the message. He said, call out against it the message. It has the definite article. It was the one that I tell you. Jonah was not to alter it, to change it, or add to it. How many think that's good advice for a pastor? Jonah, it's the message. And it's the one that I tell you. And you don't alter it, you don't change it, you don't add to it. And when verse 2 says, call out against them, that was a word that was used of a formal announcement by an ambassador representing a king. You know what all this stresses? All of this stresses the message itself is really, really important. In fact, look what God said through another prophet, Isaiah, in his wonderful prophecy. I'm going to read the small print, and when I get to the bold print, I want you to join me, okay? Let me begin, and then you join me on the bold. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And all God's people said, Amen. You see, just as the rain causes the seed to sprout, to bring forth a crop, and we eat the food from that crop, so God's Word has the power to accomplish God's purposes in people's lives. And the power in evangelism and in missions is always in the Word. For those of you that are going to Hoyava, 
in the county of Alquiche, Guatemala. Uh, let me share with you something that has <clears throat> prepared the way for your ministry. Many, many years ago, <clears throat> a Kiche man in Hoyava dreamed that one day a great big white man would show up in Hoyava and he would be carrying under his arm a black book. And in the dream, this Kiche man was told to listen to what that man said from the black book. And then one day, Bill Vasey <clears throat> arrived in Hoyava. He is a very, very big white man. Six foot five when he arrived. And he carried a black book. And that man who had that dream became one of his first converts. And he helped Bill learn the K'iche language and translate a book that I now have a copy of in my office that is entitled La Biblia and K'iche de Hoyava, Guatemala. And today there are thousands of K'iche believers because of that book. And I say to you today, that's power. That's power. And that's the power that goes with this team. And that's why we evangelize. And that's why we stay true to God's Word. It was the message that made the difference. Now there's a third incentive for us in this amazing story. And the third incentive is this. God is able to do the miracle of conversion. God is able to do the miracle of conversion. Now let's read the details of this extraordinary revival. Look at verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. How many kings do you know has ever done that? And he issued a proclamation, and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He said He would do to them, and He did not do it. Now Nineveh, plus its suburbs, was a circumference of about 60 miles. 
The total population of Nineveh at the time was somewhere between 120,000 and 600,000 people. This is a major city. And I want you to notice, the Bible says in verse 4, that after one day's walk or one day's journey, so I want you to think about this. On the first day of the journey into this city and suburbs that are circumference of 60,000 miles, the message spread. And we need to understand, in the ancient world, these houses that were made many times of, of mud bricks, they were very close together in ancient cities. People would often eat their meals on the roof, especially in the evening when it was hotter outside. They would eat uh, uh, on the roof, and they would share news with each other from rooftop to rooftop. Sometimes, if it was really exciting news, they would shout it. Imagine this was exciting news. Yeah, this was a warning. A warning. And so as Jonah's message takes hold in the cramped quarters of the city, the news was shouted very quickly. Soon, the whole town was thrown into a spiritual awakening by Jonah's preaching. Now let's just stop here and be frank. Let's be very frank. We are here in the presence of a mystery and a miracle. Let me say that again. We are here in the presence of a mystery and a miracle. Hear me carefully this morning. No technique, no methodology, no powers of persuasion can convert people. Pastor Erwin Luster used to take his students in homiletics class and take them out to the graveyard, and he would say to them, I want you to preach to the graves. And they would look at him and think, our professor has gone nuts. And what was he trying to teach them? Spiritually dead people cannot respond to a spiritual message. No methodology, no technique, no powers of persuasion can accomplish that, but God can. God can. Here's the way one pastor put it. How could one man claiming to be God's prophet confront thousands of people with this strange message, especially a message of judgment? How could a Jew who worshipped the true God ever get these idolatrous Gentiles to believe what he had to say? What's the answer? The power of God did it. This is a mystery of the miracle of conversion. I want you to notice with me some words that Jesus one day said to the people that were listening to Him. Matthew 18.3, listen to what Jesus said. Truly I say to you, unless you are what? Converted and become like children, 
you will not enter the kingdom of God. Now look what Jesus is saying. The number one requirement for entering God's kingdom is that you must be converted. And what does Jonah chapter 3 say? God is able to bring about the miracle of conversion. So the requirement for entering God's kingdom is the very thing that God is able to do. This past week, one of our tenders here at Bethel said to me, the whole message of the book of Jonah is about the gospel going to the Gentiles and converting them underneath the new covenant as the New Testament makes clear. And how many of us, if I were to announce this morning, I'm going to preach a message on conversion, and I'm going to talk from the Bible about one of the greatest illustrations that there ever is of conversion. How many of us would have said, I think pastor's going to preach from the minor prophets today? We would have never thought that. And yet here we are in the book of Jonah, and it's one of the greatest examples of conversion in the Bible. Now, I don't have time this morning to develop all of this. But as we look at these verses, what we discover is this is what true conversion is. And just before I give you the outline sketch, I want to make two very important points. Number one, if you are converted, you know it. You don't have to guess. You're sure of it. And if you have experienced conversion, as we are going to see here, you have no doubt this has happened to me. Now, if it hasn't happened to you, you can be converted today. That's the good news. Second thing I want to say about this is this. If you are converted, you've experienced the greatest miracle that God is doing today. Let me say that again. If you are converted, you have experienced the greatest miracle that God is doing today because the word conversion simply means a turning. A turning. And if God has turned you to Him through the Lord Jesus Christ, and you know you're converted, it is the greatest miracle that is happening today. Nothing else comes close to this miracle. And here it is. In Jonah chapter 3. Let's just give the outline sketch of it. Alright? Number one. Conversion happens when we believe that God's Word is true. Did you notice verse 5? The people of Nineveh believed God. 
And that's where it starts. A couple of years ago, we were on campus witnessing to an NMU student. He was very interested in the Gospel, and he asked us to come back the next week. In the meantime, he read a verse in the Bible about the judgment of God on those who do not believe, and he said, I cannot accept that. And we had a very long conversation with him as we talked about why that was true and why he needed to believe the full Word of God, but he said, I cannot accept it. I cannot believe it. And to this day, we pray for this student. Because if you don't believe the Word of God, you simply cannot be converted. Number two. Conversion is a deep conviction that your sin has put you under God's judgment. When all of these people from the king down to the lowest slave put on sackcloth, sat in ashes, and fasted, even keeping their animals from water and food, it was a way of showing grief, sorrow, Humility over one's sins. And unless we understand and agree with and feel the bad news of God's judgment on our sin, the good news will never make any sense to us. Thirdly, conversion involves repentance. Turning away from your sin to God's remedy in Christ. The king called upon everyone, turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in your hands. And what did the king understand? He knew that true repentance always leads to a change. It always leads to a new way of living, a desire now to live God's way. And then fourth, Conversion involves faith. Trusting God alone through Christ to save you from perishing. The people said in verse 9, who knows? God may relent and He may turn from His fierce anger so that we will not perish. It was a trust in the God who had revealed Himself and who they believed was merciful and compassionate if they would repent. And then finally, conversion involves mercy. Believing that God is merciful and saves those who are converted to Him. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He said He would do to them. And He did not do it. Let me ask you this morning, has this happened to you? Can you look at that and say, Pastor, I've been drawn to God in that way. All of these things that are the essence of being converted to Christ, they've happened in my life. And I know I'm a child of God. And if you're not sure of that, you can be sure. You can be converted. 
All of us know the name that I'm going to put up on the screen next. We know John Newton who wrote the greatest Christian song of all, Amazing Grace. He was a slave trader. He was wicked. He was vile. He was coarse. He was a human trafficker. And one day in a ship that was in a huge storm, in the bottom of the ship, he thought, this is it, I'm going to die. He remembered what his mother had taught him in childhood, and he cried out to God, and he was wonderfully converted. He wrote the greatest hymn that has ever been written, that has evangelized thousands. He became a pastor. He left behind a great legacy. And today, if you would make your way to the United Kingdom and you would find his grave in a lonely and solitary graveyard, these are the words that you would read on his gravestone. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and a libertine, the servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. And if God can do that for him, what can he do for you? And what can he do through you? Let's bow together in prayer. Just before I pray, have you been converted? Do you know without a shadow of a doubt that you are a child of God, a member of His family? And if not, would you come to Him today? Would you in the quietness of your heart confess your sins to Him? Tell Him you know how great your need is. Tell Him you believe Jesus came and died for you and rose again. Tell him you're repenting. You're turning from your own selfish way. And you're turning to Jesus. Tell him this very moment you're trusting him to forgive you, to save you, to make you a child of God. Thank Him for His mercy that will keep you from perishing. And tell Him you will now 
Live for the one who loved you and gave himself for you. Lord, today, by the power of your Spirit, work the miracle of conversion in the hearts of men and women young people, boys and girls. And we'll thank You and praise You and give You all the glory. For Jesus' wonderful sake, Amen.